0: Over a year now, we've been looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, and we've been using the Gospel according to John to, to do that. Today, we find ourselves in John chapter 17. So, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, if you were here last week, you had the privilege of, of hearing from Pastor John Isaacs from Kingsway Church. He filled in for me last minute. I was I got the flu and was it was pretty nasty. You wouldn't have wanted to, me to be here, um, and so Pastor John stepped in and, and did a great job. I got a chance to, to listen to his message this last week and. Uh, and just did a great job speaking out of the last six verses of John 17. And he spoke about um, the need for community, right, if you were here. And, uh, but what we need to do today is, he covered kind of the end of it. What we need to do is kind of take a step back. And we're going to look at John 17 um, as a whole. And so if you've been here the last uh, few months, we've been looking at, you know, John like, 13 through 16 has been basically uh, the, the last few hours that Jesus has with his disciples before he heads to the cross. All right, and so what we've seen, you know, uh, Jesus in kind of his last night with the disciples, he's really making the most of his last night. He's, you know, leaving them with some incredible teaching. He gives them this great example of, you know, how we are to love and serve one another. He stoops down on his hands and knees, and he he actually takes his dirty, grimy feet, their dirty, grimy feet in his hands, and he washes them. He scrubs their dirty feet. Uh, he, He tells us how we are to remember him and how we are to worship him. He gives us communion. And then as he leads the disciples out of that upper room where they were meeting, and out into the garden of Gethsemane, he does one more thing for them. He prays for them. He prays for them. And that's John 17. Okay, He prays for his disciples. And actually what, what, you, what you read in, in verse 20, we're going to read this here in just a minute. In verse 20, it says that, that when Jesus is praying, he says, I'm not praying only for them, these 11 disciples. He said, I'm also praying for those who believe in me through their message. Okay, So in other words, he's praying for the future disciples as well. He's praying for us. So literally, John 17 is Jesus' prayer for you and for me. It's pretty, pretty incredible, right? We have written record of Jesus' prayer for you and for me. It's an outstanding passage of Scripture. And uh, uh, what, what John 17 is, is when you begin to study it, and you, and you kind of take it, it's, it's kind of awe-inspiring because you think, this isn't God talking to me, nor is it, you know, us talking to God. This is the Father and the Son Within the Godhead, having an extended conversation with one another, and we get to listen in. This is it. We get to overhear God. It's a, really, it's a really neat passage of Scripture. So we're just going to dive right in, and uh, we'll, we're going to read the chapter in its entirety, all 26 verses, okay? And then we're going to just unpack this a little bit. We'll pull out a few key points here. Let's look. John 17, starting in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. That's the Lord's Prayer. By the way, I would actually call that the Lord's Prayer. We call the Lord's Prayer um, the one that he taught the disciples, right? The disciples say, how do, how do you pray? And then you know, he says, uh, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name Like kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forget, and so on, right? But we have no record in the Bible of Jesus actually praying that prayer. That's how weird. are That's the disciples' prayer. That's our prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is the longest, most comprehensive prayer that we have in, in, in written record of Jesus. Um, and by the way, and I don't have this written down here, but um, I, I don't know, you know what you walked in here this morning with. I don't know if maybe life's going great, maybe life's going not so great. Um, would it change your perspective at all if you really understood that Jesus himself prayed for you? And, and not only prayed, past tense, but is praying for you. The Bible says that, that, that he still intercedes, he lives to intercede for us. I think it was Robert Murray Machine, the old, Scot- I think he's a Scottish preacher, um, who, who had said... Uh, basically, he said, if I knew that Christ was praying for me in the next room, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I could face a million enemies. If you, if you could overhear Christ praying for you in the next room, how would that change your perspective? Here's, he just prayed for you, and he's still interceding for you. So, if you were here last week, i, I got to get back to the, 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 the topic at hand here. If you were here last week, you, you might remember that, that Pastor John began his talk, by he, he began by talking about church vision statements. He talked about this, this study that he had done for the last six months, and he was looking at all these different church vision statements, and he pointed out that basically any church you go to these days are going to have the same basic elements within their vision, right? They're going to have some common elements. They're going to have uh, a, a worship component, they're going to have a community component, and then a, uh, a mission component, worship, community, mission, right? And And... As most of you know, Twin Oaks isn't any different than that. We're the the same. We, We call it love, link, and launch. All right? our, our mission is to inspire people to follow Jesus through loving relationships. But how do we hope to accomplish that? Well, through our vision, through love, link, and launch. We love God, we link together in community, and we're launched into the world. Right? We, 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 uh, launch, we love God, Right? we express our love for God, we grow in our love for, for God, primarily here th- through our worship gatherings. Right? We link together in our community groups and we're launched into the world through our ministry teams. That's our structure. But Why? Right? Why have we chosen that structure? And why have so many other churches chosen that structure? Well, the answer, of course, is John 17. In John 17, Jesus basically sums up what his life and his ministry have been all about. If you uh, follow along in the 26 verses, you can sum it up pretty well. Right? He says, basically, I have lived my life to glorify you. I have lived my life glorifying you, honoring you, loving you first and foremost. And then he says, and I have lived in community with you and with those that you have given me. And then he says, and I have been sent by you. I am on mission. Okay? That's what Jesus was all about. Therefore, that's what we're going to be all about. If you're um, you're following along in our Bible reading plan this year, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been reading through the book of Acts. All right, and so the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke, and Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is all about the life of Jesus, and then he wrote uh, the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, right? And so the book of Acts is all about the church, so Luke, which is about Jesus, and then Acts, which is about the church. Well, if, if you've been reading through that the last couple of weeks, you might have noticed uh, Luke starts off the book of Acts in kind of a peculiar way. Uh, Luke wrote those, both of those books to the same guy, a guy named Theophilus. And the, he starts the book of Acts by saying, Theophilus, I re- in the first book, I, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, in the first book, I told you all that Jesus began to do. That's a really interesting way to start off the book, right? Because if you've ever read the Gospel of Luke, it's about the life and ministry of Jesus. and That includes his death and his resurrection. And we know after he was resurrected, he ascended to the Father. So why would he say in the book of Acts, why would he say, I told you all that Jesus began to do? Why didn't he write, I told you all that Jesus did? He didn't say that. He said, I, told, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do. Well, obviously, Luke understood that Jesus was still doing. He was still working. He's not done. How is he still working? He's ascended. To, how is he? In us. Through the spirit-filled church. That's why Jesus can say, uh, you know, in, in the gospels, he can cry out in the temple. He says, I am the light of the world. And then later he tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. Well, which is it? Is Jesus the light of the world or is the church the light of the world? And the answer is yes, both. It's, it's Christ in us. Jesus' life was centered around love, link, and launch, I believe. His life and his ministry was centered around love, link, and launch. Therefore, our personal lives and our, the, our church's life is centered around love, link, and launch. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at each of these areas very quickly. And each of these areas are massive topics, and they deserve their own sermon series, or at least, at the very least their own sermon. Uh, But we're not going to do that. I'm just going to cover these very briefly. And the fact is, about six months ago, we did cover them each in in our vision series, right? Um, And so you might be thinking, well, then what are we doing here? We just covered this. Um, We're going to talk about this for two reasons. Number one, because that's what the text says. And we're committed, as we go through John, to discuss what the text says. So that's the first reason. But the second reason is this. Um, I believe that this is what God has for our personal life and God has for our church's life. That we be centered around these three components. Um, and if this is the destination that he is sending us to, right? If we are, if we are sailing that ship towards that destination, you've got to constantly check the compass to make sure that you're headed in the right direction. Because even if you go off just a couple little clicks, right, to the side, given enough time, you will be way off course, and so we've got to constantly be checking the compass. Make sense? Okay. So we're going to be looking at Everybody awake today? You guys doing all right? Okay. All right. It's the, it's the round table, isn't it? That's what it is. Pretty, I don't know. All right. So let's, let's look at each of these very quickly. All right. First, we're going to look at love. Love. Jesus loved the Father. Jesus loved the Father. His life was centered around Honoring the Father, bringing glory to the Father. In verse 4, Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. That's an astounding statement. Stop and think about that statement for a second. He said he's finished the work that God gave him to do. Every life in, in this room is going to end one day. Every life in this room is going to end one day. But not everybody's going to be able to say, I finished my life. I finished it. In other words, Jesus' life wasn't just over. It was complete. It was He completed his life. He completed 100% of the work that God gave him to do, glorifying the Father in every single way. That's outstanding. Jesus, it wasn't, He didn't just say, thy will be done at the end of his life. That was really the mantra of his life. Jesus said, thy will be done. Back in, I think it was chapter 4 or chapter 6, I can't remember. Jesus said something like, he said, My food is to do the will of the Father and to finish the work that he has sent me to do. All right? My food is to do the will of the Father and to finish the work that he has sent me to do. And now at the end of his life, what did he just say? I did it. I finished it. I finished the work that he has sent me to accomplish. Jesus orbited his life around the Father. Everything he did was for the glory of God. We too, friends, are meant to orbit our life around God. The problem, of course, is that in our sin, we've stopped orbiting our life around God and we've expected everything, you know, to orbit around us. I'm now the center of the universe. My marriage should orbit around me. I don't know why my wife doesn't understand that, right? My, my, my marriage should, I, I am the center of the universe. My, my relationships, my, my circumstances all should center around me. I'm the center, right? My, my company, well, you, well, the church. You guys, you guys should all be about me, right? More spotlights. We go so far as to think that God himself should be all about us. And in fact, if you ask many Christians in, in, in many circles today, you know, the question, what do you think God is after first and foremost? What, what is God centered on first and foremost? Many people would say, well, me. Many, many well-meaning Christians would say, well, he's, he's first and foremost for me, for my salvation, for my happiness we got to be really careful with that. You know, does God love us? Absolutely. John chapter 3 says that. Is God for us? Absolutely. Romans 8 says that. Is God committed to making us great? Absolutely. That's what Philippians 2 says. But, but when, you, when you actually look at those passages of Scripture, you'll see that underlying all of that passion and love that God has for you and for me is a commitment to God's own glory and renown. Amen. God, God is first and foremost for God. That's the reality. I am not the main character, nor are you. I am not the hero. I am not the point. God is the hero. God is the point. We say that all the time here. God has been orchestrating all of history to maximize his own glory and renown. And the scriptures couldn't be more clear on this. I've, I've shared this with you guys before. I'm just going to say it again. Just Here's a quick survey of the scriptures. From beginning to end, God is first and foremost for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, God created us in the beginning. God created us for His glory. Isaiah 49, God called Israel out as a nation. God called Israel as His people for His glory. Psalm chapter 106 says, God rescued Israel from Egypt, right delivered them for His glory. Ezekiel chapter 20 says that God spared Israel in the wilderness, didn't let them die. Why? For the glory of His name uh uh, second samuel chapter 7 says that god gave israel victory in canaan brought them into the promised land for the glory of his name uh first samuel chapter 12 says that god didn't cast his people away even as they rebelled from him for the glory of his name ezekiel chapter 36 god god restores israel from exile for the glory of his name matthew 5 says that you and i are to do good works why for the glory of his name Okay, John chapter 14 says that God answers prayers that he might be glorified. John chapter 12 says that Jesus will endure his final hours of suffering for the glory of God. John chapter 16 says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit ultimately is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says that whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we are to do it all to the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that one day when Jesus comes again, it will be for the glory of God. And Revelation chapter 21 finally says that the consummation of all things, the consummation of all history, is that God might be praised. From beginning to the end, God is orchestrating history to maximize his glory. It is God and it is God alone that stands as supreme and central. And this is how Jesus lived his life. Was keeping God, the Father, at the, the central. He he orbited his life around the Father. Now that and that might sound a little depressing because that means that you and I are no longer the center of the universe. Right? We are not the center of the universe. Um but but that's great news. That's great news. Because almost all of the conflict in our life is based on the principle that it's all about me. Almost all of the conflict in our lives is based on the principle that it's all about me. The reason that I have conflict in my marriage is because I think that I'm the center of the universe. Therefore, my wife better act accordingly. Right? The reason I get frustrated in traffic right, is because the, 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 I'm the center of the universe. Where I have to be right now is the most important. Everybody else better get out of my way. This is why we get so frustrated in traffic. It's because it's all about me, right? Are you having conflict at work? Could it be that's because you're the center of the universe and people don't get that? How dare she talk to you like that? How dare she not, you know, give you the respect that you so deserve? How dare the, you know, your boss not give you that promotion or that raise? Don't they know who you are? Come on, ascribe to Philip the glory, do his name. That, that's our attitude, is it not? The more that the world is about you, the more that that you try to put yourself into the center of the universe, the more angry, the more tired, the more bitter, the more frustrated that you will become, and the more conflict that you will experience. But then again, you look on the other side, you look at Jesus. Jesus wasn't grasping for his own glory. He laid down everything for the glory of God. Verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He says, glorify your son. What, was, what does that mean? How is the son going to be glorified? What's he talking about? He's talking about the cross. We just sang about it. That was the first song we sang but That's what it's about. He says, "Father, the hour has come." And we, in, as we've been studying John, we we keep, you know, Jesus keeps using this term. He, he, but he keeps saying, "Father," or he keeps saying, you know, to his mom and to his disciples and to others, "My hour not yet come. My hour not yet come. My hour not yet come." He's talking about the cross, and here in John seventeen, he says, "Father, the hour has come. It's here." It's time. Send me to the cross. Why? So that I might glorify you. Jesus was willing to lay down his very life, take the penalty for our sins, go under the wrath of God. Take the justice. Why? So that God might be glorified. You know, we, we, I'll, just, I'll just say it. In the second, I think it's maybe the second song, we, we sang a line that I might, I might change a little bit. Even as I sang it, I thought, ah, man, I don't know if I totally agree with that. It says that he went to the cross for the sake of us. Yes. Yes. But underlying that was ultimately for the glory of God. Let's (laughs) let's clarify some things. Ultimately, it's for the glory of God. Are we blessed in the process? Absolutely. But ultimately, it's for the glory of God. But what does that look like for, for you and for me? Um, When we glorify God, I know that especially if you're new to church, this is kind of just one of those Christian-y sayings, kind of a Bible term. What in the world do we even mean by glorify God? When we glorify God, basically what we're saying is that we're saying that he is the most important. He is the most significant. He is the most valuable. So think about this. Just kind of break it down. This means that self-preservation is no longer the most important thing in my life. Self-preservation is no longer the most significant thing in my life. God is. God's glory is. This means that my success and my reputation and my comfort and my convenience is not the primary pursuit of my life anymore. This means that it's not my will that reigns supreme anymore. I now echo Jesus when he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Your will be done. This means that his plans trump my plans. His plans trump my plans. That's what it means to glorify God. This means that my life is no longer centered on just getting more and more and more stuff because it's all about me. Because that stuff really has no glory in and of itself. It doesn't really have all that much significance in the grand scheme of things in comparison to a holy and a glorious God. Those things really, all that stuff in my house, right? The TV and the books and all the cars in the driveway and 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 the bikes, all of that stuff, we've said it here before, it's the stuff of future garage sales and junkyards. All of it. In 50 years, everything you own will be in a dump somewhere. It will be. There is no glory in and of those things. There's no real, true, lasting, eternal significance. Those things hold no glory. To God be the glory. Amen? This is what we're committed to at Twin Oaks Church. Jesus was committed first and foremost to the glory of God, not even to his own self-preservation. He laid down his life. He was committed first and foremost to the glory of God. Therefore, we here at at Twin Oaks Church as a people, we are committed first and foremost to the glory of God. Let's, Let's look at the second point. Let's look at link. In verse 21, Jesus prays this. He says, he prays that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And I'm not going to say much on this one because Pastor John spoke on biblical community last week, but I'm just going to reiterate this. The way that we love and glorify God is by reflecting him. Right? We are his image bearers. He created us in his image, and we cannot reflect on the image of God if we are not Linked in community because Jesus's life was marked by a close, intimate relationship with the Father and the Spirit. Actually, for eternity past, God has been has been linked. It has been living within community in, in, in the triune Godhead, and we were created in His image. And this is why, as Pastor John said last week, there are so many you know books and articles discussing you know this this human uh, this this intrinsic need that humans have for community. Sociologists have wrestled with this. Why is it that we, are so, you know, we so need community? Well, it's because we are created in the image of God. It's part of our DNA. The tragedy, of course, is that you know, although every one of us are in desperate need of it, so few of us find it. So few of us find what we really need. And there are a whole lot of reasons for this that we don't have time to go into. I'll just mention one. Um, we've talked about this one before that... Uh, most community in our world is shallow because it's built on temporary foundations. M- most relationships don't last in our world because it's built on a foundation that's inevitably going to change over time, right? So we've said it like this. If, if, if um, you know, say that you really dig uh, playing ball with a group of guys, right, and nothing deeper than your love for the game binds you together, well, then your community is going to fall apart as soon as you shatter your knee and you can't play ball anymore, Right? If relationships are not built on something deeper than your love for sports or working at the same company or living in the same neighborhood or having kids and the same activity, then your relationships are almost always going to change whenever that common bond is no longer there. Community is only as strong as the foundation that it is built upon. Okay? Um, but true biblical community, the community that we are called, that I mean, you look around this room. Look around this room. You're going to find people... Of all different colors, of all different shapes, of all different sizes, right? From all of these different backgrounds and all of these different you know, levels of education and uh, economic status and all these different backgrounds. Why are we here? <laughs> What's the common bond that's holding us together? The bi- biblical community is built on the gospel. Here's the common bond that you and I share. Every one of us here are sinners in need of grace. Every one of us here have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our efforts at living right uh, you know, in, in, the, in the presence of God, of earning our way back to God, it's like filthy rags to a holy God. In compa- you know, our best efforts in comparison to the holiness of God is like filthy rags, the scriptures say. But Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived the life that we should have lived and he took our penalty on the cross and he died the death that we should have died and in so doing, he ransomed us, he rescued us, and he has made a way back to the Father. That is our common bond. And that is something that will never, ever change. That is is the foundation that our church is built upon. And this is great news for for a couple of reasons. Not just that our relationships are going to be long-lasting. Here's why this is great news. Number one, this means that everybody is welcome here. Everyone is welcome here. If the common bond is that we are sinners in need of grace, then that means that the only prerequisite that you need to be able to come in and enter into this community is that you be messed up. And you all fit that criteria. And so do I. But secondly, if our common bond is, is built upon the premise that we are all sinners in need of grace, then there's no need to hide who you really are. There is no need to hide who you really are. Right? We are united by a common need for grace. You don't have to pretend that you've got all your stuff figured out because you don't, and neither do I. We can finally lay down that false pretense. You can finally let yourself be known for who you are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So for many of us, we are enjoying this kind of community. We are experiencing this kind of community. I would venture to say that, that there are some here who are sitting here that are not enjoying that kind of community. And you might disagree with me because you're like, what are you talking about? I'm here. Right? I'm here. That, I'm, I attended church. That's got to count for something. Uh, but we've said it all the time. Uh, coming here and sitting in the back row at church, that's not community. That's called sitting in a crowd. Coming, attending church and sitting in the back row or the front row for that matter, that's not community. That's sitting in a crowd. Let me, let me show you what true biblical community looks like. This is one of my favorite illustrations of what biblical community looks like. It looks like a beautiful, diverse, colorful, warm fab, piece of fabric. That's what biblical community looks like. Beautiful, strong, colorful, warm piece of fabric. Here's what I mean. If I were to reach in my pocket and take out a bunch of spools of thread and I were to unwind them and then take that thread and then just kind of drop it you know, out here like right in front of me, you wouldn't call that a piece of fabric, Right? That wouldn't be fabric. That would just be a bunch of loose thread laying next to each other and laying on top of each other. All right. What makes the threads into a fabric are thousands of tight, interwoven, interdependent uh, uh, um, interdependencies, if you will. Tight, interwoven interdependencies. Each thread has to go over and under and around and through the other threads to make a fabric. It's not enough that they're just near each other. They have to actually be woven into one another. They have to become interdependent. And if you think about it, the more interdependent and the more interwoven these threads are, the more beautiful, the more strong, the more diverse, the more colorful the fabric is going to be. That's what biblical community looks like. We are are individual threads, but we're meant to be woven into a fabric. That means that you take all of the threads of your life, your, your, your money and your stuff and your energy and your time, and you plunge them into the lives of other people. That's what biblical community looks like. You follow me? We are to love God, we are to link together in community, and then finally launch. In verse 18, Jesus prays this. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And that's where we get our mission component. And know the word mission, you know, it doesn't seem like it's in there, but in fact, actually it is. Uh, uh, The word that we translate as sent is is missio, and that's where we get our word mission. So in other words, Jesus is saying, as I am on mission, they are on mission mission. As I am on mission, they are on mission. Throughout this prayer, Jesus has said this, Father, I have revealed you to these disciples. Father, I've, I've, I've given them eternal life. I've given them your words. I've protected them. I've shown them your glory. And now I send them on mission. And there's a really important principle stated here that we see all throughout the scriptures. If God is going to bring you in to bless you, he's going to send you right back out to be a blessing. You see that all throughout the scriptures, God never brings you in to heal you without sending you right back out on mission. Right? A great example of this is Isaiah. Right? Isaiah goes to the temple on Sabbath, and he's going to go worship. And so he goes into the temple, and he's worshiping. And all of a sudden, he sees a vision of God. He sees that vision, and he sees God high and lifted up, and he's beautiful, and he's majestic, and he's holy. And, and in light of the holiness of God, Isaiah sees his own sin and his own weakness, and so he falls down on his face, and he actually starts, starts calling curses down upon himself. He says, behold, I'm unclean. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I un- live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm a sinner, and I live among, among a bunch of sinners, right? And then, and then what does God do? He heals them. He forgives them, forgives them. He actually has one of his angels take a coal from the altar Right? That's where the sacrifice is. Why? Because God has made a sacrifice to, to forgive his sin. He takes a coal from the altar and he touches the lips and he, he heals him. And then he forgives him. And then immediately, immediately God says, and now I have a job for somebody. I need somebody to go and preach to a group of people who will never, ever listen to me. Who wants to go? What does Isaiah say? I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Here am I. Send me, is what he says. Here am I. Send me. What happened? Not only was Isaiah healed, but he immediately became a man on mission. And that's the story of the Bible. You're going to see that all throughout the scriptures. That's what happened with Abraham. That's what happened with Moses. That's what happened with the Samaritan woman. That's what happened with Peter. Remember Peter, after Jesus you know, died and was resurrected, remember Peter's, you know, we're going to study in just a few weeks, Peter denies Jesus three times. After his resurrection, they're sitting by the lake, and, and, and Jesus is, is you know, issuing basically forgiveness for Peter, and he's reinstating him. And, and, and several times Jesus says basically, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says, yes, Lord. And what does Jesus say immediately after? Then go feed my sheep. As soon as he heals him, as soon as he forgives him, he immediately sends him out with a job. He immediately sends him out with a mission. The gift is always accompanied with mission. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be on mission? Well, very simply, mission means being sent to show someone something. Being sent to show. That's what Jesus says in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, I have revealed you. He says, Father, I have revealed you to these disciples. A missionary is basically the same thing as an ambassador. Jesus was God's ambassador. He came to reveal the Father. Ambassadors come to... Uh, to shatter stereotypes, right, to let people know what their country is really like, to let them know what their country's interests are, to represent their leaders, and oftentimes even make a way, you know, into that country, develop a relationship with that country, and that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus comes revealing the kingdom of God, revealing the Father, and making a way, and now he calls you and me to do the very same thing. We are ambassadors of God. That's our mission. If you have been brought in, if you've been blessed, you are to be a blessing. That is your responsibility. Um, and there's, of course, so much more that can be said about that, but I don't, uh, I don't have the time. I will point out one thing, um, one thing on mission, and I, and I feel like I have to mention it before we wrap up because uh, it's, it's said so forcefully and so many times uh, in the text that I feel like I'd be doing a disservice to John 17 if I don't at least mention it. Jesus tells us how we are to be ambassadors. Here is how you and I are to be an ambassador. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus says that you and I are not of the world. We are not of the world. But then he also says that we are not to be taken out of the world. But instead he says we are to be into the world. Notice he didn't say in the world. He says into the world. He says you're not to be of the world, but I don't want you taken out of the world. You're to be into the world. Well, what in the world does that mean? All right, It means that we are to be fully engaged all the while being set apart wholly in this world. He says the same thing in verses 17 through 19. In verse 17, follow me here. In verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by your truth. Right? Sanctify. Set them apart. Make them holy. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then, you know, skip over to verse 19. That's 17. Skip over here to verse 19. And he says basically the same thing. I I will truly sanctify them. That's 17 and 19. And right in between that is verse 18. And verse 18 is, is, is his uh, commissioning of us, sending us out into mission. So why would he sandwich a statement about our mission, about him sending us into the world, between two statements about being holy? Is Jesus jumping around his prayer in his prayer like I'm jumping around in the sermon right now? I, I don't think so. I don't think he's bouncing around. I think he's basically saying, uh, making, making one statement. Our power for mission is our holiness. Okay, he says, sanctify them in your truth. I'm going to sanctify them. And right between here, he says, and I'm going to send them out. Sanctify them in your truth. I'm going to send them out. I'm going to make them sanctified. I'm committed to to making them holy. They're one and the same. Our power for mission is our holiness. In other words, it's the way in which we live, the testimony of our lives. Because here's the reality. Let's Let's just be honest. I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but the fact is that those outside of our church care very little about the sermon that I have to give here on Sundays. That may be hard for you to believe, but the fact is those outside of the church care very little about what I have to say here on Sunday mornings. And here's what I've been wrestling through. Here's probably been my my strongest takeaway from my study this week. Um, If I am lacking impact in my community, maybe it's less of a reflection on how how good I preached on Sunday morning and, and, and maybe it's more of a reflection of how I lived on Monday. If I'm lacking impact in my community, maybe, it has le- maybe it's less of a reflection of what I said on Sunday and more of how I lived on Monday. When Jesus first sent those disciples into the world to go and turn that world upside down, what did he, what did he leave them with? Did he, did, he, did he send them out with a training manual on evangelism? Did he send them out with a big marketing strategy or or a big budget? Is there even record of Jesus teaching them how to give a compelling sermon? No, he prayed for one thing. Holiness. He prayed for holiness. He sent them out with holiness and the whole world was changed. So the question I want to ask is, why, why isn't our city being changed? Why isn't South San Jose being turned upside down? Perhaps, The best thing that you and I can do, the most important thing that you and I can do for our friends and our neighbors who are lost and who don't know Jesus, who are hurting, perhaps the very best thing that you and I can do is to go home this afternoon and ask ourselves the question, where am I failing to live a godly and consistent life? Where am I failing to live a godly and consistent life? Because the power of of missions, according to Jesus here, is our holiness. We need to wrap up. Well, let me just leave you with this final statement here in verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. In other words, this is the way to joy. This is the pathway to joy. And I know we've covered a lot of ground today as we've looked at a whole chapter this might feel like a long, overwhelming checklist of stuff that we are to do as Christians. But friends, let me just remind you, this is not meant to be a burden. It's, it's a pathway to joy. And not just some joy. Jesus says, the full measure of my joy. And that, that word, full, the, the, the statement, full measure there, that's the Greek word, pleroma. One commentator I read on that said that when you compare just kind of you know, regular joy with, with the full measure of joy, like pleroma, he said that's like comparing a cup of water to the whole well. That's what Jesus has for us. This life that Jesus is praying for, for you and for me, a life that's defined by loving God, by linking together in community and being launched into the world, uh, this is how you and I can experience pleroma. This is the pathway to the full measure of joy. So what steps, what steps might you need to take today? What steps might you, might you need to take today? What, what, what changes, what, what commitments do you need to make today before the Lord? You know, as a church, as a a corporate body, we, we have created environments here at Twin Oaks where you can experience and grow in these areas. The primary environment where we express our love for God, and like I said, we grow in our love for God, is right here in our worship gatherings. This is where we come every week and we declare our love for God through singing and and through corporate prayer and through the taking of communion. This is where we study the Word together and we we grow in our understanding of God's glory and His significance, and we submit ourselves once again to that each and every week. Make make our times here on Sunday mornings a priority for you and your family. Um, The primary environment where we link together in community is in our community groups. Each of us need consistent, intentional, relational settings where we can let our guard down, make ourselves known. You know, there's all those one another verses in the New Testament. You know, love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, honor one another, bear one another's burdens, share one another's joys. You cannot do that if you don't know one another. You know, make, make these times a priority for you and your life. Uh, you, we need these interwoven, interdependent relationships. So the question I want to ask is, have you been woven into the fabric, or are you still just kind of that lone piece of thread? Maybe today is the day when you take the plunge and you join a community group. Finally, the primary environment where we are launched into the world is through our ministry teams, a whole bunch of different ministry teams. Uh, maybe this is the day when you begin, when you commit to using the gifts that God has given you to, to glorify him and to be a blessing to others. Because the principle stands, if God has brought you in to bless you, he's sending you right back out to be a blessing. If God has, has brought you in to heal you, then you have become a man or a woman or a child on mission. Okay, let's pray.